So I'm going to ask all of you a question. How many of you have opinions about things? <laughs> Could I see a show of hands? Because I, Gene, I know that you have opinions about things. <laughs> so opinions about anything, food, which we referred to a moment ago, uh, clothing, music, child rearing, the economy, cars, I mean, you name it, we all have opinions about things. And I dare say that even in this room, there would be some varied opinions about some of these topics that I just referred to. Uh, for example, dogs are better pets than cats. Or cats are better pets than dogs. Uh, Volvos are better cars than a Ford. Or Jeeps are better vehicles than a Chevy. Now that probably got a couple of you awakened a bit who happen to be cat lovers or dog lovers or Volvo owners. But you know, as human beings, we have many, many opinions about a lot of things. And knowing a number of you in this audience, I know that to be true. I know it to be true. Uh, these days, of course, and I'm talking about the culture that we live in, we're exposed to concepts and ideas and theories and even conclusions on a myriad of topics. And we hear about them more than we used to 20 years ago simply because of the media outlets that are available on such matters as politics, need I say, global warming and the environment, environmental disaster that some are predicting, abortion, same-sex marriage, mRNA vaccines, to such things as child rearing, immigration and border security, and high-protein diets. And I could go on and on and on about a number of things. And many of you in this room have opinions more so about some of those things than others. But you know, each and every one of those ideas, opinions, and conclusions that you and I have are based upon a premise. They're based upon a premise. Now what is a premise? Some of you have heard that word. You've assumed you knew the meaning of it. Many of you probably do. Others of you are hoping that you do. But it's pretty simple. Every opinion that's out there is based upon a premise. Now, a premise is defined as a statement in an opinion or argument that provides the evidence or reasons to form a conclusion. Pretty simple. A premise is a statement in an opinion or argument that provides evidence or reasons to form a conclusion. It contains information that leads a person to believe that an argument is true. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that all of us, myself included, have opinions about things. Some of them are relatively mundane things. Others of them are what we think are very important issues. But regardless of what that might be, that uh, conclusion that you have has a premise at the basis of it. I'll give you an example. And I'll, I'll, again, I'll, I'll identify in these statements what is the premise and what is the uh, conclusion. Now, you can have more than one premise. Uh, I've heard that, this is premise number one, cats with long hair have lots of fleas. Uh, they, premise number two, also shed all over the house. Therefore, conclusion, you should not get a long-haired cat. Pretty simple. Now, those of you who are cat lovers and have a long-haired cat, I'm just using this as an illustration. Please understand that. Or another example. I've read that, premise number one, burning fossil fuels releases CO2 into the atmosphere. And premise number two, CO2 is a gas that traps heat in the Earth's atmosphere. Therefore, conclusion, 
burning fossil fuels is the cause of global warming. Now, I'm not suggesting that the premises that I'm stating necessarily lead you unequivocally to that conclusion, but for some people it does. So these are just illustrations of how people have a premise that they will build an opinion upon. And you could go on and on with any number of things. Now, my purpose today is not to debate dogs or cats as pets, uh, or global warming for that matter, but to show the power of the premise in the way that we think for our opinions, even arguments that people may have, or truths, more importantly, that we hold. Today I want to, brethren, discuss a fundamental aspect of our beliefs as Christians and rehearse the incredible power and importance of the most important premise we use in our beliefs in the church. Now, many of you know of the game show Jeopardy. And, uh, you know, Jeopardy, how many of you have watched Jeopardy on TV? There are, yeah, okay, good, good number of you. It starts by giving you the answer to a question, uh, and by knowing the general topic and being given the final answer, contestants are expected to determine what the question is. And, of course, uh, many of us, including my wife and I, have spent a lot of time uh, watching Jeopardy in times past. So, uh, Tim, if you could pop that up. So let's just assume that we're playing Jeopardy, and this is the answer. Life's most important question. So what is life's most important question? Even for people in the world we live in, not just focused on, on all of us here today, although I think it, it bears consideration that it is for all of us, you know, the, the question must be asked before an answer can be pursued in jeopardy. Life's more, most important question. It speaks to a number of other issues, and we'll get to it in a moment, but for instance, why were you born it stems from the correct answer to this. Uh, many people ponder that, even outside the church. Uh, can I have a purpose to my life? The ultimate question of personal security, how did the universe come to be? It's an extremely vital question, and as a matter of fact, there are people who are very secular in their thinking that still ask that question. So the answer uh, to this becomes the most important underlying premise of life. And the answer that we'll get to in a moment has existential implications. Now, hopefully all of us understand what the word existential means. The, the word existence is a base word for the word existential. So when you're talking about something that's existential, it's important to your existence. It's a very, very important question. So every one of us in this room, whether we're a teenager, a baptized member yet, should consider what is life's most important question. Now, the answer is this. Does God exist? Now, you may be thinking, why is he asking this question? Because the answer to the question, your answer to this question, does form the bedrock of reason for what you believe. In other words, the premise upon which you view life, the Bible, and everything that you and I believe that is important in this life. And I will add, it is the it forms a bedrock for what millions of people believe in or not in this world, because there are those who would answer this question in the negative, as I think many of us know, or that they don't know. 
You know, I mentioned a premise before, earlier, and I'll mention this more than once during the course of the sermon, but you know, the, the, the thing about a, a premise is people can have a false premise, and a false premise that they assume is accurate and true, and they base many decisions on any number of topics based on that false premise. And often that's because it's something they assumed and didn't prove. So that being said, coming back to this issue of life's most important question being, does God exist? You know, what impact does that have on your beliefs and mine? You try to think this through. Logically, what impact does the answer to this question, for you individually, and I may add, this is one of those questions that one person cannot answer for a group. It's a personal question. Now, if we were, if we were discussing a, a course of mathematics, uh, you know, what does two plus two equal, one person could answer for the group. This is somewhat different. But when you think about it, even as a Christian, and I'm going to go through a number of topics, all of which one's belief about these topics is predicated upon the answer they come to with this fundamental question. Abortion slash life. Evolution versus creation. Sex before marriage or the sanctity of marriage itself. Homosexuality. Gender by choice. Lying. Cheating. Death. Resurrection. And I could go on and on with a number of topics, all of which we would probably find extremely important to us personally. You know, sometimes people start with the belief or the conclusion, and they don't consider the premise upon which they make those determinations. And that's true by the millions in the world that we live in. I want you to take a step back from this uh, this question just a little bit, for those of you who have a history in the church, and ask the question that the church have, has historically asked. You know, you go back in at least my history in the church over the last almost 60 years, and for a number of you in this room, uh, uh, even those who are second and third generation Christians, you have family members who go back that far. You know that we would ask the world that we live in when we were trying to reach out to the world with the gospel message, we started often with two fundamental questions. One of them, does God exist? And the other one, is the Bible the word of God? Now I want all of you here, young and old, to think about why are those two questions important if you are responsible for, let's say, touching the lives of people in a world where you don't really know what they believe, you don't know what their convictions are, you don't really know anything about where they are uh, theologically, why start with these questions? And why these two? Why are they important? And how will the answer that one comes to with this first question affect the rest of their life? There is a reason why we ask those questions, and we still do, I'm not suggesting we don't, but it was one of the most requested booklets we published 50 and 60 years ago, was Does God Exist? You know, man's earliest philosophers, people like Socrates, Aristotle, Leonardo da Vinci, Sir Isaac Newton, and other names, a few of which I will mention, Pascal is one of them, they attempted to address the question of does God exist? 
You didn't have to be a, uh, a church claiming to preach the gospel to ask that question. These questions were asked back in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century by theologians, by scientists, by philosophers that were very well admired at the time. And there were many theories and approaches to existential questions, and other questions about the existence of, of the universe and why we're here. I'll get to Pascal in a moment. One of them was by an individual by the name of William of Ockham. Some of you may know who that is. Uh, he came, uh, he developed really a theorem which was called Ockham's Razor. And fundamentally what that is, is this. The simplest explanation to a problem is probably the best. If you've heard of Ockham's Razor. But, but Pascal's wager, who is Pascal? Well, he was a Frenchman. Seems like they get all the credit, the French, and if the Meekers were here, he'd like that. But there were some brilliant French. And he was a mathematician, physicist, and theologian that lived in the 17th century. But he addressed the question of God's existence. And, and, and the interesting thing about Pascal, and, and it, Pascal's wager, we know what that is, it's kind of a bet. And, and if you're betting something, there's a bit of a risk, right? But really, that's what this is referring to. As it states here, Pascal argues that a rational person should live as though God exists and seek to believe in God. What was his reasoning? Because he, if people weren't absolutely sure, now again, this is 400 years ago. If God does not exist, such a person who lives as if he does will only have a, a finite loss, some pleasures and luxury possibly, whereas if God does exist, he or she stands to receive infinite gains and as he viewed it as representative of eternity in heaven and avoid infinite losses of an eternity in hell. In other words, if you don't know if God exists, the better bet is to live as if he did. You understand, it's so simple in one respect. And I would submit to all of us today that there are a lot of people that abide, whether they know or not, by Pascal's wager. They, from their limited perspective, try to live their life some of the time, as if a God, not the God necessarily existed, but they don't really know. You know, but his, the point I'm making here is that history shows that through time, this has been a very basic fundamental question. It really has. And there was reason why the church addressed those fundamental questions and why we continue to do that. Because the answer to that question affects everything a person believes thereafter. Everything. When you think about it. If a person comes to the conclusion that God does not exist, then just think about those initial questions I asked about life and the sanctity of it, and marriage and family, and on and on the list could go. It will affect the way that person views those things. And if they believe that God does exist, and it may, it may add by extension, which is another topic, but I'm putting that in the assumption range uh, for all of us here, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, well, then it changes everything in that person's life. You know, life has its real-time realities that even those of us in the church that are converted and believe in God as, as, as we know it, and we do, sometimes that premise, though, that, uh, that you believe in God and that I do is tested. It's tested sometimes. You think about the implications of a, of a dramatic and unexpected job loss and how it could affect a family. A financial 
serious financial difficulties, a marriage problems or a marriage breakup, uh, an illness, death, terrorism, other tragedies and trials. Sometimes when people face that, even those of us in the church, it contests that premise of whether or not we really believe that God exists and that the Bible is the word of God. It contests that. You know, an easy academic argument or assumption that God exists uh, is something that a lot of people have. Uh, this approach is not substantial enough, though, when certain things happen in life. How many people do you know, and maybe it's yourself at some point in time in, in your life, I don't know for any of us, that you say you believe in God, you, uh, you, you believe that you've seen evidence of that, and yet a, a personal trial comes to the point where because of the way that you react to that trial, it really tests you. You know, when a husband or a wife or a child unexpectedly dies, when one goes through a painful divorce and a marriage breakup, when one's mate leaves them because of the religion that they've come to respond to and embrace, or when you find out unexpectedly that you have cancer at early age in life and you only have six months to live. You know, the point is that life's problems can overwhelm academic arguments to God's existence. Didn't say it overcomes them, but it can overwhelm them. In Hebrews chapter 11, I'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We know that the author of the book of Hebrews focused on the subject of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, much is said by the author of, uh, of Hebrews about faith. And we have, I think rightly so, as God's people, gone through some of the early verses of Hebrews 11 and parsed some of the words to really extract what's the real deep meaning about, uh, about the belief in God and faith that, that Paul, if he indeed was the author, is trying to convey to the, to the converted Jews, really, the Hebrews, and to the church. But in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Notice it says, Hebrews 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Really, one of the first things right out of the gate that, that Paul refers to is that we must believe that he is, that he exists and that he was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, if it's not true, if God does not exist, then nothing really else matters, does it? And we have some of the, uh, uh, what we see in society today on, on many levels. You know, when you're talking about the existence of God, it's important to be reminded of, of a few terms. Uh, We've all heard of the term atheist, but let's start by talking about what a theist is. Uh, by definition, a theist is a person who believes in God. And uh, typically, uh, one God, but, but again, a theist is one who believes in God. Thus, you have the word theocracy, which is a term that refers to a, a government based upon uh, a belief at which God is the head of. So, uh, a theist, atheist, we've heard that term a lot. Uh, those are individuals who state in one way or another that they do, do not believe that a creator God exists. They just simply don't. And then you have a term called agnostics. And agnostics means basically, I don't know. Gnosis is 
you know, in Greek is, is knowledge. I, and A, knowledge, I don't know. They don't know. They, they are questioning. Uh, they haven't concluded God doesn't exist, but they haven't concluded that God does exist either. And people are really a one of those three categories when you think about it. They've, they've got to be, because if they either believe God does exist or doesn't, or they don't know. I don't know of a fourth option. Uh, but, uh, and, and for our purposes, I really want us to think about all three of these as we walk down this road. Because if God doesn't exist, and I want you to think about this as a member of the church or, or given where you have been in the last five years in your life, 10, 15, in my case, the last 58 years of attending the Church of God since a, a, a young teenager. Because if God doesn't exist, then keeping the Sabbath day, other than maybe the physical benefits of taking a day off, um, the holy days, observing the holy days, even in the face of sometimes having to do that during midweek, it affects the job and other things, school, praying, if God doesn't exist, who are you praying to? Who am I praying to? Uh, tithing to the work of the church, reading the Bible, why bother with any of it? I mean, if God doesn't exist, why bother? But you know, if God does exist, and I keep saying if, and I don't want anybody here to get offended by me stating it with the question, because I think it's important that all of us question ourselves in terms of the premise upon which we base our beliefs and thus decisions that we make. Because if God does exist, then it all matters. It all matters. If the Creator, God, does exist, it all matters. The point is, there's really no in-between. I'm going to turn to 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John 3, we read John's comments to the church. And, uh, and he speaks to the, the belief that we have and embrace about our future. We just finished several weeks ago keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in which we were given an opportunity at the feast to, to revisit the vision and understanding that we have about the future, about our future as a part of God's church, and about the future that the rest of mankind, albeit ignorant of it, has ahead of them. What a wonderful vision it is, and it gives context to our lives today. Well, here we find John actually addressing that on a personal level. 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. You know, Mr. Bennett made really an indirect reference to this earlier. You know, what, what a wonderful thing it is that we should be called the children of God. Now, everything I'm reading here in 1 John chapter 3 presumes a belief in God, admittedly. But let's read this. Notice he continues on, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You see, the knowledge of and the belief in a creator God is essential to understanding what we do. Now, I, I dare say there's probably some of us in this room uh, started their journey of, 
eventually becoming a part of the church, striving to address the question. I know I certainly did, albeit as an unconverted young teenager. So some of you in the room may say, well, I remember way back in the day when I wondered if God existed, and I prayed and said to God, if you're out there, you know, we, we've heard those, those accounts of individuals, which may really describe the earlier uh, efforts of many of you when God, as you look in hindsight, was beginning to call you. What we find here in 1 John chapter 3 is John acknowledging to the church that the world outside of the church doesn't understand its, its destiny. And for that matter, the destiny of those relative few that God has called now. Verse 2, beloved, now we are the children of God, but he, he, he makes a statement here that it's not just where we are now. It's not just that we are a part of the church uh, spiritually. Uh, we're flesh and blood. We're still yet... Uh, uh, human beings we 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 aren't uh, have been changed from mortal to immortal he says but we're still called the children of god and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be in other words we don't know everything there is to know about how our existence as a spirit being is going to manifest itself in every sense of the word but we know that when he is revealed Speaking of Christ returning, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He's making a, a, a very profound statement that we will know more about our existence when we see Christ again. Because at that point in time, as we understand the progression of God's holy days and their meaning unfolding, that's when the scripture, this book that we believe is the inspired word of God, reveals to us when we'll be changed from mortal to immortal. 1 Corinthians 15 bears that out in great detail. We shall see him as he is. If you believe in God, it all matters. It all matters. Human beings' destiny is then understood. But then I come back to all of us today and ask the question, is it, is it even true? Is it even true that you and I await a future of being changed from mortal to immortal? The point is, it is more important for us to prove and to know that we've proven that God exists. We can do it. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, I've already done that. Well, I suspect that's true with most everybody here. But I think there's value in revisiting the question as to why it's so incredibly important. I mean, we human beings can forget. I certainly can and I'm not talking about the short-term and memory loss that comes with age. I'm talking about getting distracted from some fundamentals that brought us into the church, that got our attention when God was calling us, that caused us to want to find out whether or not this path was real because we maybe have felt betrayed by religion for so many years before God called us. Whatever the case might be, it's important. We must do it. It's a step that everyone ultimately must take. It is life's most important question. Does God exist? I want to consider the parable of the sower in this regard in Matthew 13. In Matthew chapter 13, we know that this is the occasion where there are a number of parables that are referred to in this section of, uh, of Matthew's account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
And I'm not going to get into the issue of, of why Christ spoke in parables, but I want to focus on this one parable that all of us here know very, very well. And that's the parable of the sower. But I want you to think about this parable in light of the fundamental question that we're asking ourselves today. And the point I, or, the, or the issue I brought up a few moments ago of whether or not we are as firmly grounded in having addressed that question in our personal lives as we ought. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of the earth. Verse 6, but when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. And verse 8, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Now, we know that we get to the conclusion of the matter of this parable when we come down to verse 21. And this is where Christ is explaining the meaning of an individual, verse 21, who has no root in himself but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word of God, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Now, we could, uh, we could discuss for probably a while as to what, what is meant by this, because I think the, the, uh, the application of the words of Christ in this parable could go various different ways. It all, it all results in an individual who had the truth, and something got in the way of what they were exposed to, any number of things. Uh, and such has been the case of some who have come in contact with the truth in the church of God historically. And while it's not the only reason, I think in some cases one reason is that the existence of God wasn't taken seriously and wasn't really proven by that individual. I don't think that's true in every case, please understand that. But I think in some cases that may well have been true. They allow the world's comments about God, the misguided their thinking, and there's a lot of comment out there about academics that will comment about the relative foolishness of believing in a creator God. But you know, you can prove that God exists. It's not an impossible task. You can and you need to. You can and you need to. Many years ago, uh, I was traveling, I think, back from Cincinnati at the time uh, on a plane back to Dallas, and I was reading Richard Dawkins' book. Some of you know it. Uh, he's written a few of them. It was called The God Delusion. And I happened to be reading this, uh, sitting next to a young man, and somehow we got in a conversation uh, of what I do, and I mentioned I was a pastor, and he was kind of taken back by the fact I was reading Richard Dawkins' book on The God Delusion. And he asked me, well, why are you reading that? And I said, well, you know, I feel that it's important to know what the other side thinks and how they reason. I said, Richard Dawkins is a very educated man, very intelligent man. I want to know what he thinks about God 
and why. And, and it, that seemed to resonate with him. Um, but you know, the Bible speaks to the existence of God. And, and, and uh, you know, what I want to talk about for a few moments is well, where do I go to, to prove God exists? What book do I read? What book do I read? Well, <clears throat> I made reference to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And yes, if you haven't, you can look it up on Google on your phone and you'll realize it's been published for about 15 years or, or maybe a few years less than that. But there are educated voices out there that claim that there's no God. And they've written books about it. Uh, many of them are famous atheists, of which Dawkins is one. I'd like to go back to Genesis 1, though. Let, let's see what the scripture has to say about, about this subject and ask the question as to whether or not this is where you're really supposed to start if you're going to prove that God exists. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to quote some verses that everybody in this room know, knows very well, and you probably don't have to turn there, in fact. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, no matter what translation you read, or you can read the original Hebrew text, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So these few words in this first sentence in Genesis 1 and verse 1 presumes an existence of a creator God that not only created, but created the earth and the entire universe. I'd say that's covering a lot of ground in just a few words. The statement is made. Now we fast forward to John 1. Now, many of us in the church understand why we fast forward from Genesis 1-1 to John 1. Because we, we go, you know, forward, um, what, almost 4,000 years, and uh, uh, we find at the beginning of Christ's ministry, John uh, himself understood because of it being revealed to him. It says, in the beginning was the word. That's the same beginning that was referred to back in Genesis 1.1. And the word was with God and the word was God. So we see that in the beginning it was the word or logos, but comes to the same inevitable conclusion based on what the scripture says about God. I want, to under, I want to underscore, that's, what, that's the book we're reading from right now, the Bible. That's what it says about God. There's a presumption of the in, uh, existence of God right from the very beginning. And not just that God existed, but that God created the entire universe. Again, a lot stated in those first few words. Now, back to Isaiah chapter 46. Again, I'm inserting uh, Isaiah's comments about the nature of God, or really more importantly about the uh, the permanency of the existence of God from the mouth of or from the pen of or from the word of a man that was, we believe, was inspired by that God to talk about God. Now notice what we read. We've read this many times before. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So we've read just a few verses here in the Bible. You know, one book, and I will reference Richard Dawkins' book, and I could uh, reference others, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, God is Not Great, his book. There, another, Sam Harris, some of you probably know who he is. He's another very famous uh, atheist that is debated on, uh, online and, and written books. These individuals uh, say that God doesn't exist, and they try to logically prove from their perspective why. And then we have another book, and the one that you have in your lap in most cases, some of you have it electronically, I understand, but it says that he does exist. Psalm 14, Psalm 14, verse 1. 
Now, we find a statement similar to this a few times in the Psalms, and uh, it can seem offensive on the surface, but I think it's important that we recognize that, that the, uh, what, what God is revealing to us is the way he sees individuals that flatly refuse to consider the existence of God. Notice Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So some say there's no God due to their status, their intellectual status, and some are taught that it's foolish to believe in a God. Some say there's no God or don't know because they've never even asked the question seriously. But you know, God puts people who have rejected his existence into a classification that we read at least as is translated from the Hebrew into the English as fools. Now I say that comes across as offensive. That could be translated arrogant, senseless, and you could go on with, with synonyms about it. That's the way God sees it. And there's a reason why. There are millions of people that have come to that conclusion. Now, I don't believe that God know, or believe, believes that God is going to change the minds of people by just calling them names any more than we would. But one of the things we find in reading the Bible is that God calls and describes people as to who they really are. That's his way. He's, he speaks truth. He doesn't get upset and just call names. And yet we read in the, you know, from the writings of Peter in 2 Peter that he would have all men come to repentance, including the fools that he's referring to here in Psalm 14. He doesn't call them fools out of spite, except that where it has le- leads millions of others. But it's, it's how he sees it right now. It's how he sees it right now. It takes a certain amount of human intelligence, and I underscore human intelligence, to not believe in God. (laughs) To not believe in God. And with a less educated, I'm talking about man's form of education, some do believe in God. Uh, The issue of arrogance obviously fits into the equation. Actually, there have been many... uh, surveys that have been done about the belief in God. And one of the interesting ones that was done just a couple of years ago is that the more educated and wealthy that people are, the less likely they are to believe in a creator God. Now, that was actually from the Pew Research Center a couple of years ago. That's a generalized statement, and that was done because of global surveys that were done. But I find that interesting. But, but getting back to you and I, because I said at the beginning, this question, uh, which is the mo- life's most important question, I believe, and I think the scripture bears that out, is a very personal one. It, it, it's not as if there's one right answer. Well, there is one right answer, I believe, but in, in terms of how it's going to impact you or I. You and I have to ask this question individually. And I, again, I assume it's one that many here have asked themselves already, at least on one occasion. But what will it suffice to prove to you that God exists? What will it take? What is enough proof for you? You may be thinking, well, I already did this, and so enough proof was A, B, or C. Well, maybe so. I suspect that's true. 
But you know, you can't prove God exists ultimately to anyone other than yourself. You can't. Hopefully explain why. But how much proof do you need? How much proof do I need so that that becomes the premise upon which all my beliefs are based, that my, my very existence as a human being is based? I think the answer is somewhat entailed in when a, person's, when a person puts their life on the line for what they believe in, then they most certainly have met the evidence they needed to know that God really does exist. That's a pretty heavy statement. And some may say, well, are you saying that I have to be willing to give up my life for what I believe in? That's, that's a heavy one. That's a heavy burden for me to bear. And it is a heavy burden to bear. And I'm not saying that that's always going to manifest itself that exact way. But it has to affect our life. And when you go back and consider, those of you who are baptized, what you had someone walk you through, Luke 14, counting the cost, you, you, you remember, and I certainly remember as well, uh, what that minister, that individual who was counseling and helping you to, to see what God would expect of us went through. You go back and read what Christ said in Luke 14, verses 25, I think, through 33. It really comes back to this fundamental point. 1 Corinthians 15, I think the, one of the things we have to establish, first of all, when we get to this point of proving that God exists, 1 Corinthians 15, to re, go back to the Scripture to read what the Scripture says about life and about death, and about being changed from dead to life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. Paul writes, and I got breaking into the context of, uh, of this chapter, he said, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So Paul was making the statement that, look, the, we're false witnesses if, if it really didn't happen, even though we, meaning himself and the others in the ministry at the time, claimed that he was resurrected. You see, let's not forget that when Paul was writing these things, this happened in their lifetime. We're talking here probably not more than about 20 years after the crucifixion or so. I mean, that's, that's the period of time since my wife and I and family moved to Dallas. That's not very much time when you think about it. So it was very fresh on the minds of those who heard about this one that was crucified, that was some claimed that were the Messiah. And so he's, he's bringing this up. It was, it was a very important uh, argument that was taking place, and he was trying to put something to rest regarding what the church, what the brethren at Corinth believed. Notice next verse. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, it doesn't matter. It's a waste of your time and my time to have faith in a human being that never existed or one that surely wasn't resurrected and really wasn't the Son of God. You know, it kind of comes back into the fundamental question, can God resurrect a, a, a being, a human being that's been dead to life again? In the context of this next example in Revelation 12, and I'd like you to turn there if you would, it's crucial uh, to the topic today. Because based on your journey and my, your experience, my experience since God called us, your Christian life 
basing it on the premise of knowing that God exists means everything. And I want you to think about this in context of the few verses we're going to read here in Revelation 12. Verse 10. So here we find John uh, being shown this in vision. We know that Revelation chapter 12 is a bit of an inset chapter in terms of the history of God's people and uh, the impact that the God of this world has had upon them. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. So this is referring to that period of time just before and at the return of Christ. And the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. But notice verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. This is a prophecy about the level of conviction that God's people will have at the time of the end. These were Christians that believed in God and his existence and his word to the point of having counted that cost and weighed it. You see, the stakes of believing in God are huge, and it means everything. Proving that God exists has been viewed a number of different ways. You know, in what way did you prove, or did I prove? As I said, it's a step we all must have taken and many of us have heard of these different arguments. They're more technical in nature, but the cosmological argument, you know, why does the universe exist, starting there. The moral argument, there are certain values that some people believe are inherent in human beings that you don't find in other species. Um, the teleological argument, that there's purpose and design to the universe and to life. And the religious experience, people who have actually heard the voice of uh, of God, or at least uh, seen the, the, the hand of God miraculously. You could think back to the history of the nation of Israel as they were being delivered from Egypt. Think about that. Proving God exists from the Bible. Can you really do that? Can you really prove that God exists from this? It's a trick question, I'll admit. We've read in it, haven't we? I would submit to all of us that you cannot prove that God exists from the Bible. I can show you where the Bible says that God exists many times, but, but think about this logically. If you have yet to prove that God even exists, then why would you go to a book that that God that you haven't proven that exists yet claims to have written to prove that he exists? You follow the logic here. Now, I'm not suggesting you can't use the Bible. I said that you can't prove from it. You can use the Bible for guidance as to how to do that. And once you get to a point in life, which I suspect most people here have, where you believe that God exists, 
and you believe that this really is the inspired word of God, well, then that's a whole different matter. That's why proving that God exists is so essential. You know, I've mentioned to the uh, students at Foundation Institute that if you want to prove to a friend of yours that is an agnostic or, or maybe they claim to be an atheist in, in college or university or maybe it's a family friend, you don't go to Re, uh, Genesis 1-1 or, or John 1-1 and say, well, see, it says that God exists. That proves it. Now, I believe what it says in Genesis 1-1 and 2 and 3, <laughs> and I think most everybody here does. But that does not prove that God exists. That proves that the Bible says that God exists. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We know that Romans, uh, the book of uh, Romans is a very interesting one. It, of course, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And uh, again, these are members who grew up in that environment, uh, the the Roman world, uh, the Greek-Roman world of the first century. Uh, there's been countless movies made from Gladiator to you name it, Ben-Hur, and you see snippets, you know, of what life was like in the Roman Empire. I'm not suggesting that the average church member was immersed in that per se, but it was a part of what they experienced. And uh, we know that in the first 15 verses of Romans chapter 1, Paul greets them, compliments them, expresses his desire to visit with them, and, and, and com- again, compliments them on their faith. Verses 18 and 19, let's read that, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul here introduces the world that these people live in, an unrighteous, godless world. And so he's introducing that topic here. And then in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now, I don't believe that he was saying that God has showed it to each individual Roman person outside the church. But in general, man has had an opportunity. And and, and in particular, the educated Greeks and and Roman culture did. They had an opportunity to know and understand the existence of the true creator. Again, important. But the keys in verse 20. A couple of weeks ago, our brother Jerry uh, Gerard made reference to this, I think rightly so. Let's read Romans 1 and verse 20 and consider what he was, the point he was making. He said, for since the creation of the world, so we're going back to Genesis 1 and verse 1, as we read from it a few moments ago, his invisible attributes, so Paul is acknowledging there are attributes of God that at, at least at that point in time in the first century may have been invisible to them. I believe some of them have become more visible to us today because we either see further into the cosmos or we see deeper into the way that life exists in DNA and single cell animals and the like. For the invisible things, attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Those last several words are extremely important. He's saying that mankind, in the end, has no excuse other than to come to the conclusion that there's a creator. And now you may say, well, then why, if, then why are these, well, how do these educated people deny it? God said it, I believe it. And I believe that the, the key, of course, in all of this comes back to the issue of premise. Most scientists, most physicists, most cosmologists, 
have accepted a premise, a premise that there is no God. They haven't proven the premise one, they've assumed that premise. And there are reasons behind it. And they can be quite complicated, yet quite simple in some respects. Maybe you can put that next slide up. Some of you in, in elementary school remember the scientific method. Uh, or in junior high school, maybe. I mean, we were taught that. And that fundamentally is this, you know, that you, uh, you, know, you start with, a, uh, with an observation or question. You research the area. There's a hypothesis of what possible uh, reasons for that would be. You test with an experiment. You analyze the data and you report the conclusions. It's a pretty simple process. Um, and again, they used to teach this in, uh, in, in science classes. And that type of objectivity is, is, is lost sometimes in the highbrow and high-level science that exists in the world of biology and other places. You know, man, when left to himself, can come to see some things about truth, some things. Without God's calling, without God's Holy Spirit, without responding to that, he's not going to see all things. Some things, if you look at them objectively, and that's the key in what Paul says and what God inspired him to say in Romans 1 verse 20. If people will objectively look at the facts of the created order that we live in. And so, you know, the James Webb telescope went up uh, several months ago and it was, it's one million miles from Earth and what it's seeing of what we know to be the early universe is fascinating cosmologists. And they asked some of the same questions I was asking, you know, where did the universe come from earlier on in the, in the sermon? And we also find, of course, what mankind has come to see about what is referred to as idea or intelligent design when it relates to life itself and how complex life really is talking about at the micro level. Years ago, Mr. Armstrong wrote a booklet, originally in 1957. And it, it was the old booklet, the original booklet, Does God Exist? But I'm going to read what he had to say. So he's, he's talking about his early life when God called him. He said, I was forced on the examination of the facts to realize that there is no proof for the theory of evolution. <laughs> so we're talking a lot of years ago when he stated this. It is purely a theory, a belief, a faith not based on proof, though its zealous proponents push it into the world as if it were a proven fact. I found no proof of the existence of a creator God. Or he says, I found proof of the existence of a creator God. I also found proof that the book called the Holy Bible is in fact the very inspired revelation from that all-intelligent, all-knowing God of the vital, necessary, basic knowledge and instruction without which man is unable to solve his problems, prevent his evils, or live in peace, happiness, and prosperity on this earth. You know, you can be convinced and prove that God exists by looking at the created order. And there are millions of people that claim to believe in what's called intelligent design. That's a, that's a field of study, a formal one, uh, although it's in the minority, uh, of scientists out there because they come to the conclusion that it has to be designed. And there are, there are a lot of technical reasons for that. Um, but ultimately, your deepest level of conviction and proof must come another way as a church member. And that way is by direct contact with God. Contact. 
Years ago, in 1997, there was a movie that came out entitled Contact. It was actually a, a, a science fiction book written by Carl Sagan, a name some of you will remember. He was a famous astronomer that died some years ago. Actually, he died as that movie was being produced. And the whole point of the movie, and if you uh, saw the movie Extraterrestrial and some of these others, is that when human beings who postulate about alien life in this particular case, that the only real proof in the end is if you have contact with that alien life. When you come back down to, I wouldn't call God alien life, I would, the creator God, direct contact with God, not only thinking or observing the evidence that God exists. You see, the level of evidence as a creator, as a designer, sometimes isn't enough when a person is facing trials in life that can shake their belief system. But there is a proof, which by extension includes his word, his law, his plan, that is the ultimate convictor from which no one could convince you or I to the contrary, and that's when we have the point of contact with God. And that has to do with interacting, interfacing with God. In an example, and I've given this example before, but I think it illustrates the point. Tanya, my wife, sitting back in row Z, at the back of the hall. Anyway, you know, my, Tanya exists in my mind not because of thinking about her, which I do, or just deciding she was there, but by interacting with her, contact. Her existence to me, Tanya's existence, is not proven by the beds being made at home, by the dinner that was served the other day, or by the clothing being washed and ironed and put away on hangers. That's all evidence, pretty good evidence. But the ultimate proof is contact. You know, that evidence we talk about they even, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 20, it's there. And unfortunately, people ignore that. But by reaching out and touching and communicating with God, that is when the conviction becomes its deepest. And that's when God is working with you and I when he calls us. And that's the struggle sometimes that we go through in that process of being called by God. Whether it's us growing up in the church as a young person or whether it's God calling us at age 40 midway through a career We have to respond to that invitation, and we must act, and we pray. I've never known of anyone that has sincerely asked God in the privacy of their own prayer life for God to be shown to them that he exists where God hasn't done that. God does that. He's done it in the lives of probably most of you in this room. In 1 John 2, 1 John chapter 2, First John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate the Father, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
Now by this we know that we know him, for if we keep his commandments. In verse 4, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ultimately, the knowing God is a little bit different than just knowing that he exists. And that's the level of, of, of conviction that God wants for all of mankind to ultimately have with him. Not just to know that there is a God, that the universe that we live in, is, there's evidence that it was created and designed, but that each individual eventually has contact with and a relationship with that God. And that relationship is only made available to precious few people when we look at the numbers that exist in the world today. By talking to God, by responding, by God hearing our prayers, speaking through his word, we interact with God. And what we call building relationship with God. We have heard that phrase and have pondered that many times. Malachi 3 is an example. This is an illustration. Here we find the prophet Malachi <clears throat> stating to the Jews that were returning to build the temple in Jerusalem. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now or prove me. It's interesting he makes that statement. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. How many of us, how many of you have at one point in time in your life, maybe as a young man, and, and you questioned the issue of tithing. How can, this doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm living a little bit on the edge as it is and giving 10% more away of my money is going to, that's going to work. And then you, you get, went to God about that, sincerely, privately, honestly, openly. And God showed you in time that he means what he says. See, that's where contact takes place. That's where there's a personal response of our creator to us as individuals. You know, when it's all said and done, we can look up at the sky and realize our, you know, and, and, and recognize that this universe didn't come into existence by somebody other than a God thinking about it. But in the end, of course, the interaction and the contact and relationship is the ultimate evidence and personal proof of our creator. Does God exist? I'd like to turn to one final scripture in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. And Jeremiah, in his uh, ministry, he, uh, he made many statements, of course, to uh, to God's people, and, and it wasn't an easy task that Jeremiah had, but he, here he, he was focusing on what was really important. Jeremiah 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, all of which people do. But let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me. He knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Eternal. 
You know, I, I pondered this question near the beginning, but I want to again, some of you may be thinking right about now, but why is this topic something that's so incredibly basic, uh, you know, a hurdle that I went over that you, you may have gone over years ago in some cases. At a time when our world is so chaotic, at a time when the moral foundations and ethos of Western society is being dismantled before our eyes, why talk about this? Why ask, have you proven if God exists? Well, brethren, it's because that conviction, that belief for both young and old will be and is the foundation of your faith. It's a premise upon which your beliefs, all of them, all of mine, are based. By having that conviction established in your core beliefs, beliefs such as the sanctity of life, the definition of marriage, the logic and purpose of tithing, the purpose of keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, the future of your family and mine, hope in the face of death, the promise of the resurrection, if we embrace the absolute belief in the Creator's existence, we can then be confident in the authority and purpose of God, His promises and guidance in your life and in my life. I will end by repeating these few words. The power of these beliefs, the power of your real convictions, comes back to one fundamental premise, one fundamental truth upon which your life's convictions are based that there is a creator God that designed the universe, that there is a being in whose image we are all created, that there is a God that shows us a future beyond the chaos and confusion in the world we live in, that there is an omniscient father that has a plan for you, for me, and for all of mankind. The answer to life's most important question is yes, God does exist.